Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We'll continue with our hymn of the month. Uh, Last time to do this hymn, so uh, whenever I decide what the new hymn is, I'll let you know. for July, but uh, Creator Spirit by Jose. Catechism memory work. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particularly when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain 
even in heaven, as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. And uh, from Psalm, uh, let's do the Bible memory work. We'll do it um, section by section, phrase by phrase, uh, so the children can memorize it easier. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, 12. Now all together and try not to look at it if you don't have to. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103:12. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. Um, Eric, I think Rebecca's going to go with you. and I forgot to send you some stuff you needed, so that's on me. But y'all can figure out whatever you need for them. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a uh, saying for the pastoral ministry. Fake it till you make it. When it when in doubt. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> um Where am I at? Catechism. Uh, so the catechism today is uh, continuing up this Office of the Keys, Confession and Absolution section. And there's a number of uh, things to talk about in here. So uh, first of all, uh, typo, my typo. I, I type these up. Um, I believe when called ministers of Christ, deal with us by his divine command, not di- diving Diving, not diving command. Uh, diving, yeah, not. He's not uh, jumping off a. He's not jumping into a swimming pool. Uh, his divine command. Um, anyhow, aside from that, um, first of all, the question: What do you believe according to these words? So you have to go back to last week's bulletin and see what these words are, and that's the quote from John 20, the Bible memory work that uh, is when Jesus institutes the office of the keys for his church um, and for the disciples when he says to the disciples in the upper room, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, uh, they are not forgiven. And he gives them the Holy Spirit. We talked about ordination, I think, last week. 
with that. So, um, last week we talked a little bit about how, like, the difference between Christ giving the keys to the church and Christ giving the keys directly to the disciples. Uh, but regardless here, it's all clarified because the point is um, this brings it back to the actual practice of private confession and absolution that when a called minister of Christ deals with us by his divine command, by Christ's divine command, um, we'll get to that middle part in a second, this is valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. So the point is with the office of the keys, um, obviously the forgiveness of sins and the comforting of Christian consciences, uh, but the way the, the, the main function of all of this is that Christ has put a representative for himself on earth for you to hear in person the words and the absolution of Christ, uh, to, to hear the forgiveness, um, well, the law and the gospel uh, of, of Christ. And, and this is valid and certain, right? This isn't... Um, I mean, it really does irk me whenever people say private confession absolution is too Catholic because, one, I mean, Lutherans never actually got rid of that practice completely. Um, it's always been in our catechism. And, uh, two, it's not a Roman Catholic practice. It's a Christian practice. It's instituted in the Bible by Jesus um, to the disciples that, that they would... That, that this would happen. And so this idea of it being valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself, uh, that's because Jesus said so. Jesus said, if you forget, he said to the pastors, if you forgive the sins, they're forgiven. If you don't, they're not forgiven. Um, and that is because pastors are not uh, special in and of themselves because, you know, I have a great personality or something like that. Uh, you know, I could care less about that. The, the point is that I have been appointed to be the stead, the voice of Christ, right, in this place. Um, and that's, you know, in, in the big, in the, um, the group confession and absolution at the beginning of the divine service, right, I say, upon this your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of Christ, announce to you the grace of God and um, in his stead. I forgive you all your sins, right? So um, it's it's Christ's voice through me, right? Same thing with like the Lord's Supper or baptism. When I say I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not me, like Pastor Myers, you know, born April 18th, that, that guy that exists on this earth, right? It's Christ is doing the baptizing. Or when I say... Um, this is my body. I'm not saying this is my body, right? Of course, of course not. It's not my body. I'm saying this is, I am speaking for Christ. Christ is saying in this place, in this time, through my voice, this is my body, right? So um, that's why Christ gives pastors. Now, uh, the other thing to recognize here is the two aspects to this, Office of the Keys. We talk a lot about absolution because that's what happens more often is that pastors get to absolve sins of repentant sinners, and that's a good thing because 
the fact that that happens more often means that the church is filled with repentant sinners, which is what the church should be filled with, which is good. Um, but there is also the act of excluding unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation. And this is what we call church discipline as kind of a broad category, uh, but or so, sometimes it gets referred to as excommunication. That re, excommunication refers more to a church right, um, R-I-T-E, like a, a certain right of the church when someone is um, excommunicated by a by a, uh, a like an agenda right where you like read passages and say this person is excommunicated. Now that doesn't actually happen that often in the in the LCMS because of the way that we kind of have church discipline set up. So the way we have church discipline set up is that according to it's it's all kind of based on like whatever the church's constitution says. So like for instance, our constitution says that um, if there's an openly unrepentant sinner, I can't remember the exact wording, but if there's if there's a case of, of openly unrepentant sin, uh, and and the pastor uh, and the elders rebuke them, and um, they remain unrepentant, then they can be then they can be excommunicated, removed from the church church roles. Now, normally what happens is if you, when, when someone is rebuked of their sin, uh, they just stop coming. <laughs> and then we have a clause about if they can't be contacted after six months, so on and so forth, then they can be removed from the church rules. So uh, normally that's what happens. Normally, normally someone who is practicing open, unrepentant sin, they don't want to hear about it from the church. And so normally... Uh, they don't fight it, and then they just kind of disappear. And, and that's kind of, it's really, that's actually kind of sad. But the point is that church discipline and the, when Christ says, if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven, then the pastors are given the keys not just to, to uh, loose sins, not just to forgive sins, but to bind sins, right? To say, I'm not, for, you don't have the forgiveness of Christ because you are not repentant. Right. I mean, you can't you can't be forgiven of some something that you're not repentant of. Um, so just because just because Jesus is gracious. Right. Doesn't mean that if I uh, shoot someone out of anger, if I murder someone and then I say, yeah, I don't care. I uh, you know, I think it was that's what I wanted to do. I know it was wrong and I don't care. Um, just because Jesus died on the cross doesn't mean that 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 forgiveness is automatically applied to that sin, right? That that forgiveness has to be received by faith, and that faith is lived out in repentance. And so, um, to if if when that happens in the church, so if you look at First Corinthians chapter five, when the, there's an open unrepentant sin in the con, in the Corinthian congregation, and Paul says kick them out and leave them to the devil that they might repent. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, look, it's the job of the church, the job of the pastors, to exclude 
openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation. And the purpose of that is to bring them back. Right? The purpose is that they would be left to their own devices and to the devices of the world that they would hopefully uh, see that as a preaching of the law and come and come back. Now, there is a way that this happens more often in the structure of the LCMS that does not involve a, a, a full excommunication um, or even a full removing of someone from the roles. Uh, and this is what pastors will often refer to as the minor ban. So the major ban would be excommunication. The minor ban is when someone's openly practicing sin and you're working through it with them. And um, so very, very commonly say that like you have a couple that's living together outside of marriage and they don't think it's sinful. Pastor says it's sinful. You're counseling them. You're working through it. Okay, uh, you're living in unrepentant sin. And we're not going to kick you out of the church yet, but um, you cannot receive the Lord's Supper with us uh, right now until you repent, right? So that's the minor ban is banning someone from the, the altar, right? That um, you can still come and hear the preaching of the word um, and, and we're going to counsel through this for now. We're going to kind of work work through this, but there's going to be a minor ban. And so uh, that that's one that's the other way that that kind of happens in the LCMS. But um, just all in all, the point is to say that there's two parts to the office of the keys. There's there is the loosing of sins, which is great, right? Absolution, comfort of conscience, full and free forgiveness of sins whenever someone repents. If someone does not repent. It's also the pastor's job, and it's not it's not the fun part of my job, right? This is not the part of my job I like, but it is part of my job to say, yeah, like you're living in sin, and you're not you're not forgiven. Um, and hopefully you take that message seriously and come back. Any questions on that? So yeah, Chad. It could be both. So um, there are cases where someone will come to confession and then basically try and get an absolution without being repentant, right? So uh, the way that happens is that repentance means to change your mind, right, and to to turn the other direction. And so repentance has uh, three parts. First, contrition that someone is sorry, truly sorry for their sins, second, that they receive absolution, and three, that they now go out to lead, lead a new forgiven life, right? So that all of that is part of repentance. And if what, what, what I know has happened before, it's not happened to me personally, what I know has happened to other pastors before is that someone will come to them for confession, and they'll say something like, they'll confess some sin, right? So I committed adultery. And uh, the pastor will 
you know, forgive them their sin and then say, uh, you know, counseling, okay, now part of this repentance, and this isn't, this isn't the Roman Catholic, like, now you have to do good works to be forgiven, but it's just true repentance. True repentance now says that you need to go tell your wife, and, and, and you need to, um, you know, reconcile these, this situation, you know, whatever needs to happen. So um, if someone stole something, then they need to, you know, return it, right? If someone committed adultery, they need to also confess to the person they sinned against, which would be their wife, right? Some, something like that. So then the person will say, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Like, I, I, got, I got my forgiveness, right? Like, I'm good now. I don't need to go do that, right? And so um, that's, we would say in that case, uh, well, that forgiveness doesn't count. <laughs> you did not actually just receive absolution because you were not truly repentant. And unrepentant sins can't be forgiven, right? That's, a, that's also kind of, I mean, it's connected to my thing about like being iffy on the whole confession and absolution at the beginning of the church service because, I mean, it's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's always conditional. Like, when, I always have to say, upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office, uh, forgive your sins. Because I don't, I don't know what, what's in everyone's hearts on, on Sunday morning, you know? I don't know if someone's just, like, tricking themselves into to thinking that they're getting forgiven for something that they're not repentant of. Uh, so, um, anyhow, so that can happen. But, back to your original question, in general, yes, uh, normally the way this happens is that it becomes obvious to the pastor somehow, hopefully not by gossip, but sometimes by gossip, that someone is practicing open unrepentant sin. So, um, I mean, and that, that can happen in any number of ways. Like, if people are living together, like, like couples living together, that can happen in, like, premarital counseling because, like, no one thought to you that this was even, you know, an issue. <laughs> um, or, you know, any number of things. So, so, sometimes people are are doing something sinful and don't even think it's sinful, and they'll just be proud about it. And then you have to tell them, like, yeah, that's a sin. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, but, there, so there's a number of ways that it, com- it comes about. But it really doesn't come about that often. I mean, um, Yeah, if they're not they're not really repentant, they just want they just want they want to feel better, right? They want to give a false sense of of a comfort of conscience. Um, all right. Anyway, that's catechism. Um, the hymn. What I was going to talk about today, uh, just really briefly, is the a couple of the lines in here. Um, are kind of just interesting because they have these numbers. So in the second stanza, 
second line, second stanza, thrice holy fount, thrice holy fire, our hearts with heavenly love inspire. And then in the third stanza, first line, your sevenfold gifts to us supply. And this is true in a couple other Pentecost hymns too, is that it'll often speak of the Holy Spirit in connection with these three numbers three and seven. And I just wanted to bear that out a little bit, that um, what what's being referenced there. And I, I think it's just kind of a nice nice image. But so with the thrice holy fount, thrice holy fire, I I think that's talking about baptism, because well first of all fount, okay, <laughs> that's pretty obvious. Um, but in the in the fount, uh, what how are we baptized? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So. It's a Trinitarian uh, baptism, um, and then thrice holy fire. Uh, so when Jesus says how people are to be baptized, what does he say? By water and the Spirit. By water and the Spirit. And the Spirit is often portrayed as fire, right? The Holy Spirit comes down in fire at Pentecost, tongues of fire. And I, I actually love the fire thing, and we don't... I think Lutherans don't talk enough about fire for a couple reasons. Um, one, the main one, is that Pentecostals talk too much about the fire of the Holy Spirit. And whenever someone who's mistaken about something talks about it a lot, we tend to shy away from it. Right? So, um, like the, another example of this would be baptism by immersion. Well, baptism by immersion is actually really beautiful imagery, and um, Lutherans... There are different Lutherans who have practiced baptism by immersion for a long time, but uh, Lutherans in this part of America have said, nope, we're not going to do that because the Baptists do that. <laughs> so it's kind of the contrary in spirit, and that's fine. Uh, there's nothing kind of wrong with that. But the fire of the Holy Spirit is a beautiful image, and I, I pray that my that – this sounds kind of Pentecostal of me, and, but what I'm – my contention is that it should not be weird to us, is that I pray that my sermons would be filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit, right? And set people's hearts on fire um, with the Holy Spirit. And that, that can sound kind of like too emotional and uh, enthusiastic and kind of like, you know, non-denom, like trying to like stir up emotion or something. But what I'm talking about is that the Holy Spirit's love and the Holy Spirit's presence is truly like a fire. It it burns hot. Um, and t- today in the sermon, we're going to talk about lukewarmness a little bit. And the the idea is that uh, the the Holy Spirit's presence it's a hot presence, right? And it's a powerful presence. It's an ener- like fire is energetic, and um, that our lives would actually be filled with this real energetic hot presence of God in our life. And I, I, I just wish we talked about that more because I've, I've thought about like finding a time to just like preach on that. But um, but this is the image of the spirit. And so so baptism is this uh, Trinitarian, holy, thrice holy, thrice holy, uh, Trinitarian, holy reception of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it is uh, a fiery, a fiery thing. And then the sevenfold gifts, so seven is the number of completion in the Bible, right? It's the number of fullness. Uh, Seven is always enough, right? You have 
uh, seven days of creation. You have uh, seven loaves of bread left over. You have uh, seven trumpets blown on the last day. Uh, and um, I think when the hymn writer writes seven here, that's basically what he has in mind, is that the full the fullness of the gifts of the Holy Spirit would be to us supplied. The fullness of the gifts. Now, I do wonder uh, if the Roman Catholic Church, uh, with their seven sacraments, is connected to this at all. And I don't know exactly when the like official seven sacraments, how that came about in history. And I don't know if Rabanus Maros, um, who was obviously Roman Catholic because it was like, you know, 1000 AD and everyone was Roman Catholic unless you were Eastern Orthodox. Um, I don't know if he has that in mind, but I, I will say, I, thinking about that, that it does make sense that you would try and identify seven sacraments if you had a different definition of sacrament than the Augustinian definition that we have, because it is trying to identify, I think, to some degree, to the Roman Catholic's credit, that Christ's gifts are full. And, you know, with all these things that they identify, marriage, ordination, confirmation, um, and then Lord's Supper, baptism, absolution, and last rites, that Christ is full in his mercy. Now, I don't actually think that, you know, four of those things are sacraments, but but I, I will say that the idea of like a sevenfold gift from God by the Holy Spirit, that just makes sense because what we're confessing is that, uh, look, God is abundant in his mercy and grace, and he has a lot of gifts to give us. And that's not limited just to baptism and the Lord's Supper. He gives us gifts of marriage, gives us gifts of um, you know, pastoral care, if you're thinking about like last rites or... Um, or the gift of ordination, which, in a sense, has sacramental overtones to it, right? So, um, anyway, those are the numbers. Um, three, Trinitarian, seven, fullness, um, and related to the Holy Spirit there. So, all right, any questions, comments on any of that? Yeah. Of, of the, the Roman Catholic sacraments? Yeah. Uh, so, it's uh, Baptism, Lord's Supper, at at, well, they don't call it absolution. They call it, I don't even know, they call it like reconciliation now. Um, it used to just be called, uh, pri- you know, confession. Uh, so, or penance. But um, baptism, Lord's Supper, ap- uh, confession, absolution, then the ones that we don't hold to as sacraments are marriage, ordination, confirmation, and last rites. And they have a different name for last rites too now, which I don't know. They're always changing their minds about things. Has uh has the Pope resigned yet? Does anyone know? He was thinking they, there was talk about him resigning. Then we we're gonna have three living popes at once who all contradict each other, because you know they're all right because they're all popes, but they all come. Con- <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I, that's the other reason I was gonna say. 
I forgot. Yeah, okay, yeah. So there's two reasons why Lutherans don't talk about the fire of the Holy Spirit. The first one is Pentecostals. The second one is that in the early 2000s, I think, there was a mission. You, you guys probably remember this. There was like a mission uh, emphasis for the Missouri Synod called Ablaze. Ablaze, yeah. We, it was like a program. And it was an utter failure. And, uh, you know, the church at, at large, the church did not really grow from it. Um, it brought in a lot of bad theology because it was kind of trying to be like Baptist and Pentecostally and um, everything. And the conservative, conservatives hated it. The liberals didn't like it either. Anyway, it was a complete mess. And um, it's, it's probably far enough away that we can talk about that now. But um, it, it did not really work well for the church. And so now no Lutherans like to talk about it anymore. Because we tried the ablaze thing, and then it didn't work, and so now, now we don't talk about fire anymore. <laughs> um, well, that's how some things go. I always tell people, it's not that complicated. Just preach the Bible and uh, be faithful to the Word. And do things well, right? I mean, it's not, not like we want to... Uh, Do things half-heartedly just saying, oh, well, we, we have the word, so we don't need to worry about anything, right? We still need to actually work uh, for the kingdom, but we don't have to have some special program to, to get things done. All right, uh, moving on then. Man, you got to get started earlier, guys. Um, I got too much to say. All right, we're gonna finish. We're gonna. We're pro- we probably won't finish it up, but we're getting very close to finishing up uh, the rest of the Israelite kings. So hopefully this has been beneficial to you. I know it's been like a lot of weird names, and uh, it gets kind of repetitive going through all the kings. But I promise you, on the other side of this, once uh, we get through these kings and chronicles. Um, parts of the Bible, you will know this part of the Bible better than like 98% of American Christians. That's just, I'm hazarding a guess there, but if you go out and you ask your average Christian on the street who Pekiah was in the Old Testament, what are the chances they're going to be able to tell you? Okay, so um, you guys... No, you're, you're at least going to be familiar with, um, I sounded like I met Westerner there, you guys, uh, y'all are going to be familiar with um, the divided kingdom and the United Kingdom and divided kingdom parts of the Old Testament that a lot of people have just totally forgotten, but are actually pretty important to the mythology and to the, the structure of the Old Testament. So um, hopefully it's been beneficial to you. And um, so, so let's get through this. So, so Menahem is the next king that we got to uh, just barely last week. And um, from this point on, every single king gets assassinated by his successor. So you can see the continual downfall of these, these kings. Uh, so Menahem uh, assassinates uh, 
Shalom. And uh, Shalom is only king for like, I think like six months or something. Um, and all the while, of course, all these kings still keep supporting the golden calf cult. And so they're all evil. None of them repent of the idolatry of Jeroboam. And so they're all uh, portrayed by him. And basically you get this continual downfall. You also see in these the growing of the Assyrian Empire. So at this point um, in the uh, late 700s or the early early 700s, um, you have the, the growth of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire keeps attacking both Israel and Judah. And Israel uh, keeps trying to find ways to either fight against it or side with them or, or what, what have you. So we'll kind of see what um, Mahanam does here. So um, the, the first thing he does is he attacks a town called uh, Tifsa, um, which is a very far eastern empire, uh, back from, from King Solomon's. And um, he is a very nice and friendly guy when he does this. And he massacres the whole population, including all the pregnant women. Um, so Mahanam, you know, is uh, probably one of the worst uh, kings, one of the more evil kings of, the, of Israel. And um, then when Assyria comes to attack, and you can kind of tell the kind of guy he is, you know, first of all, by his massacring the city, and then uh, second of all, by this, he secures peace for Israel by paying off Assyria, right? So he gives a large uh, special tax to the king of Assyria. Now, when we think about this, so, so he's just kind of a weaselly guy, right? But when we think about this, um, I think in our society, we often think, that money is everything, right? So uh, that the world kind of revolves around money, and if uh, people get the money that they need then or want, then they'll be happy and uh, will stop, you know, bothering other nations or whatever. Or uh, the, the reason that people do evil things is just to try and get as much money as possible. And I think there's some truth to that. But what we can see here, because what's going to happen is that um, this is going to work temporarily. And then Assyria is going to attack again. And then another king is going to try uh, to uh, buy Assyria off again. And... Um, this is going to happen back and forth a little bit, but it doesn't ultimately work. Assyria still is going to take Israel captive. And so when you think about money, uh, especially kind of a nation's money or like the, the taxes of, of a nation in this sense, um, and money as a political tool, realize it's not everything, right? It's, it's not a permanent fix. And it's not like if Christians just had enough money, then we could like make all the problems go away. And the same thing is true even you know with a church that 
you know, money is important to some degree, right? Like keeps the lights on, pays salaries, so on and so forth. You know, that that's important. Like that that stuff matters and tithing is important and stewardship is important. But you also have to have truth, right? You have to have the real gospel in a church. And in a nation, you have to have real morality. And uh, politicians who are there to preserve peace and punish wickedness. And here, uh, Pekiah, or sorry, not Pekiah, Menahem um, tries to secure peace with something that ultimately does not give peace because it's not ultimately God's truth. And so um, that's, that's why I would recognize there that mammon and uh, money is only a, a temporary fix here. Okay, so then uh, Menahem doesn't last long because, of course, he's going to get assassinated. And um, no, actually, I guess he doesn't get assassinated. He's the, um, he's the only one who doesn't get assassinated uh, from here on out. That's my bad. Uh, Pekiah is his son. And, um, yeah, so Pekiah, uh, is only there for two years. He's his, he's Menahem's son. Um, there's not a lot to say about him, except that he, um, continues the golden calf cult, of course. And then, um, He uh, followed his father's lead in um, trying to buy the support of Assyria, and um, that, and then, and then later on, um, let's see here. Let me get my notes straight, because then there's Pekka next. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Pekaya, uh tries to keep doing what his father does, and then Pekka, who's going to assassinate him, one of the captains. So. Uh, and, and this is what I was saying is that I was just trying to remember the order this happened in that when Menahem tries to buy off the king of Assyria, it works for a moment. And then uh, Pekka continues that. Uh, no, sorry. Pekiah continues that. Pekiah continues that for two years and then it fails because Pekka, who assassinates Pekiah two years later, um, then... Uh, tries to fight for independence for Israel. And so you have this, again, this temporary fix by money, but it ultimately doesn't really help anything. And you can see this throughout nations of the world. Nations that have become very rich, what do they want? They don't, they don't just, they don't, yeah, they want to get richer, right? They don't, they don't settle. And America became, you know, has become very rich in, in many ways, uh, you know, despite our massive national debt. And, you know, what, what do we do? We just keep going to other nations and trying to establish, you know, American ideals in other places. And it's just kind of, it seems never-ending um, that when people get power-hungry, they get power-hungry. And you can't just stop that by buying them off. And then, so Pekka is a little bit different than that. He doesn't try and buy Assyria off. Um, instead, he tries to, well, first of all, um, he, he doesn't repent of the golden calf cult, so he's evil, right? I mean, all the t- like, 
the reason I keep bringing that up is because the Bible keeps bringing it up. Every time it starts about a new king, it says, and he did not repent of the sins of Jeroboam, uh, which means that he continued this golden calf cult, which means like that, that it's not meant to be monotonous. This is a real huge problem that God's people, God's chosen people are worshiping golden calves for hundreds of years. That's a big problem. Right. Okay. So, so we got to keep that in mind. Like that's not a minor detail. Whenever that comes up. Okay. So he continues that. But then, uh, at first he tries to join. Uh, since this kind of relationship with Assyria has gone on, um, he's like, okay, well let's uh, let's join for- forces and we can attack Judah. Uh, we can we can attack Jerusalem, and um, luckily. Uh, we won't get into this whole story today, but the when the Lord sends Isaiah to Judah at the same time, um, so if you are looking at the divided kingdom sheet and you're in the 700s here down at the bottom of Israel's reign and you shoot over to what's going on in Judah, um, Isaiah is the big prophet here. So Isaiah prophesies that this confederacy of uh, Syria and Israel is going to fail. And so it, it does. Um, the Lord does not cause them victory over Jerusalem, which is good. So when that doesn't work, uh, when joining forces with them doesn't work, then he says, okay, well, let's try something different and tries to claim independence from Assyria. And uh, that does uh, not go well whenever all of a sudden Assyria had gotten used to getting this money. And then all of a sudden he says, we're not going to pay this uh, money. And at this time, uh, this is the start of the major downfall of Israel. Because you get the these initial raids into Israel that Assyria is um, taking large blocks of territory. And things are not, not looking good. Um, so to finish up Pekka real quick then... Um, you know, in, in some ways, I think when, when we read this, at first when he tries to declare independence from Assyria, you're like, yeah, this, is, this, this might be good, uh, right? Like he's doing something that he should be doing, uh, fighting against Assyria and um, trying to maintain the independence of God's people. But when we see the big picture of what he does and how flip-floppy he is, right? How at first he's paying them and trying to attack his own cousins and brothers in Judah. And then he decides, no, I'd rather just try and take this land for myself. Um, And the whole time he's literally worshiping false gods. We can see that he's really not any kind of good king. Right? He's he's just power hungry. And this is true, and to to draw this back to our context as well. Like, we need to be careful of this, I think, that just because, and I'm kind of talking about the Pharisaism of, like, conservative Christianity today, but just because, like, there's a politician, uh, let's say, who says, like, Christian things once in a while, we need to be careful that they're not just playing us, right? That, that they're not, uh, we need to hold people accountable and not... Uh, just let um, 
just say, well, America is kind of a Christian nation, you know, and, and the politicians try and do some good things now and then. There might be politicians who say the right things now and then but are just power hungry. That's how Pekka was. So um, that's just something to be on the lookout, uh, be on the lookout for for our leaders, that what we desire is true Christian leaders, um, true, true leaders who would actually preserve peace and punish wickedness. And uh, that does not um, mean just having someone who says a few of the right things now and then, but is really actually just a power-hungry politician, right? So uh, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, all right. Well, what time is it? 10.02? Uh, actually, just let, I can finish this up. We got, we got, we got two minutes. We can, we can survive. Okay, so the final king, and then we'll be done with Israel's kings. The final king is Hosea. And um, Hosea assassinates Pekah um, as, basically as Israel uh, is being taken over by the Assyrian army. And he reigns for nine years in this kind of halfway taken over zone of Israel. Um, and throughout his reign, uh, Assyria takes over Israel. And uh, Hosea rebels so he refuses to pay certain taxes, and they have skirmishes and battles. Um, but eventually, after nine years, Assyria lays siege to the capital, Samaria. Um, and that lasts for about, the siege lasts for like three years. Things move a little slower in the ancient world when you, you know, don't have AK-47. So um, the siege lasts for about three years, and then um, the, they're completely captive. And uh, in captivity, what, what, what happens is that uh, the, the nation taken captive will move people around and disperse them so they can't organize. And so you get uh, the start of a, a Jewish diaspora here where the, they take people from Samaria and from different Israelite areas and uh, spread them out east uh, into the Assyrian Empire and basically turn them into slaves um, and, and captives of the Assyrian Empire. So um, after that, Israel does not have any more kings until Christ the King comes back to reign. So that's the overview of Israel's kings. Any questions? It only took us like four months. I don't know how long. I don't know how long. It took. I'll have to go see when we did Jeroboam. All right. With that said, let us end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our worship together today. Uh, May it be enlivened by the fire of your Holy Spirit. And we pray uh, that uh, the pastors of your church would remain faithful in forgiving sins of repentant sinners and in retaining forgiveness from the sins of the unrepentant. We also thank you for Christ, our heavenly King, who is King over heaven and earth and who at on the final day, all knees uh, will bow before, including those earthly kings who Christ will put under his footstool. We pray all of this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.